welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, I'm traveling, but you're still in for a treat. We've got a few things in store for you on this episode, and stay tuned for a future plenary session where I take more papers to task. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on plenary session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ for Question of the Week, Hematology-Oncology Boards Edition with Dr. Sven Olsen. Dr. Olsen, it's great to have you back. Great to be here. So, since we last did Question of the Week, we had our first fellowship interview day of this season, of the 2019-2020 season. Big year. Big year. You, in your role as Chief Fellow, um, were one of the Master of Ceremonies. You guided the applicants through this day. Any, any sort of takeaway messages from this first fellowship interview day? Well, this was um, the sort of basic science day. So we had a, a lot of the applicants who are interested in doing bench research. Mm-hmm. So actually, I was involved less than I might be for the remainder of the interview days. So mm-hmm. it was mostly pioneered and led by uh, our former fellow, Ted Brown, mm-hmm. and his wife, Julie Maxson, who uh, both are basic science researchers in hematology and oncology here and he's and Ted's also a, a physician scientist in that the sort correct. of mstp fast track kind of program right right mm-hmm. so they kind of po- they they formed the day and the schedule but yes you're right i kind of uh spoke with all of them uh not individually but in a group and kind of while they were uh waiting for individual interviews and yeah it was fun that's great and uh you were recognized were you not i was the the podcast got me recognition. This is the second time I've been called out for being on, for plenary, being on session. plenary session. It's fun. It's good. Well, it was a good day. I find it uh, so interesting to speak to the applicants because um, you see you see the future, and uh, the future's in good hands because they're very exceptionally bright. Um, they ask good questions, and um, and they seem more than ready to to tackle. I think a very tough first year, which is the first year of hematology oncology. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I can only speak to being a fellow here, but I think you can't get away from the fact that it's a busy year. And, you know, we do have most of our clinical work in the first year and take that for whatever you want. I think that's a good thing for me, I like to rip the Band-Aid off and mm-hmm. just get it over with. And I would say that no matter how bad it was, it was still better than being an internal medicine resident. <laughs> oh, you really, you really felt that way, huh? I think so. I think, well, for a couple of reasons. One, it was actually doing what you, you, you really are kind of in your niche finally. Mm-hmm. And You're passionate you can, about. You can put aside a lot of the things you don't really care about dealing with a lot. And um, for that reason alone, I think it was a lot more fun. I think the three hardest years of training are the first year of fellowship, the intern year of residency, yeah. and the third year of medical school. 
Probably yes. Yeah, but I don't know in what order. That's the question. And medical school is changing now. I don't know. In my in my time, it was still two years of purely classwork, and mm-hmm. that was hard for its own way. You know, yeah, I think soul of, crushing, soul crushing, memorizing irrelevant uh, things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, but you're right. Now it's a little bit more integrative, so that's good for them. Well, you're here for question of the week. What's the question this week, Sven Olson? This week we have 25 year old man who's referred with a diagnosis of classical Hodgkin lymphoma. Mm. Um, He initially noticed a painless lump on his neck. had been present for a few months. He got a CT scan of his neck. His PCP ordered it, and it showed a 3.8 by 2.1 centimeter mass in the right supraclavicular region and a smaller lymph node of about 1.8 centimeters in the right cervical region. Results of an excisional biopsy showed occasional large multinucleated cells with expression of CD15 and CD30. Dim PAX5. His ESR is 20. The reference range they gave is 0 to 15. He has no other associated symptoms, and his PET CT showed no additional sites of disease. So the patient initiates treatment with doxorubicin, bleomycin, vinblastine, and decarbazine, or ABVD, for two cycles, and then he gets an interim PET scan, and he has a Deauville score of 2. So the question is what is the next best uh, step in management? A. Involved field radiation therapy to 20 gray. B. Subtotal nodal irradiation to 30 gray. C. Two additional cycles of ABVD followed by two cycles of escalated bleomycin, etoposide, doxorubicin, cyclophosphamide, vincristine, procarbazine, and prednisone, otherwise known as BACOP. Mm. D. Four additional cycles of ABVD. Or E. Four additional cycles of AVD. So emitting the bleo. Those are the answers. This is a great question, because as you know, you're a classical hematologist, and there's nothing I love more than classical Hodgkin's lymphoma. I think it's a (laughs) fascinating disease. It puts the classic in Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's a fascinating disease, of course, because of a long and and storied history in oncology. It goes back to the 1950s. Uh, It goes back before the 1950s, but uh, the seminal moment in the 1950s where Henry Kaplan and colleagues at Stanford University were able to achieve the first uh, cures uh, through the use of radiotherapy, albeit at substantive toxicity and and, and discomfort. Uh, Then fast forward um, to the first use of pioneering chemotherapy like MOP um, and MOMP, and uh, and then finally to the to refinement of ABVD by Belladonna, and now you know a condition that um, history books will say was once a universally fatal condition uh, for people who presented at least with advanced stage disease in as late as the 1940s, now has some of the highest cure rates in all of all of lymphoma, all of medicine. Uh, this has been a really remarkable story. The power of combination cytotoxic chemotherapy. So your question is a good one. And, and I think it is, um, let's just run through some of the salient points. So a 25-year-old gentleman with classical Hodgkins, uh, they did a CT and a PET CT, and I think you probably don't need both these days. You could just get the PET CT. Um, and they find a 3.8 by 2.1 centimeter right supraclavicular mass and a smaller 1.8 centimeter right cervical mass. Uh, the ESR is 20. Um, there were no additional sites of disease. Uh, the patient is 25. Um, the patient got ABVD for two cycles and has an interim PET with a doval of two. Um, and I would say, going back to, like, you know, CT, PET CT seems excessive. I'd say, you know, this is not unreasonable in the real world. Right. You know, if I mean, you have a PCP, a really astute PCP who's has a, you know, leaning towards hemonc, might say, oh, this is probably going to be in a young guy, something like Hodgkin's or some other lymphoma. Maybe I should just get a PET. But that may be a little aggressive to start. So I think realistically, they probably would either get just an ultrasound of the neck or a CT, and then you'd have to do a PET stage. 
That's interesting. I like your I like your scenario. Here's the scenario I'm going to walk you through. I see this person comes into their PCP with a painless lump. It's been going on for several months. PCP probably in the real world has tried antibiotics. You know they have, Sven Olsen. <laughs> you know they have, and that didn't do anything, right? And the lump has progressed. And now the lump measures 3.8 by 2.1. I would say, boom, before you even do your imaging, just let's just get the diagnosis. We'll cinch it right away with FNA or yeah. core needle biopsy. It's true. And, you know, sometimes we who spend a lot of time thinking about lymphoma, we fault people for doing an FNA, but I think an FNA is fine to rule out carcinoma or some other type of cancer. Then you can move forward with a core or an excisional. Especially because you can do that a lot of times same day. Same day, right. Same day, before I'm even waiting for my imaging. Then I get back the diagnosis of Reed-Sternberg cells and likely Hodgkin's lymphoma. Then I'm moving straight to PET-CT. Boom, skip CT. I saved you steps, Van Olsen, saved you some money. Yeah, but you know, calling someone to come do an FNA or something like that, that requires a phone call a lot of times. A CT requires a few types of the keyboard. You have to have, you have to have some friends in pathology who are willing to come do it <laughs> all right well that's a good that's good okay so so we have um i, gu- I guess i'd say that the, one of the things that we really have to separate here in hodgkin's lymphoma is the separation between early and advanced stage hodgkin's lymphoma mm-hmm. which as you know has to do with whether or not the disease is confined on one side of the diaphragm ann arbor one or two or on both sides of the diaphragm ann arbor three uh, or advanced disease, which is in number four. Um, and in this case, it seems like the PET-CT, which has very good sensitivity, is excluding disease below the diaphragm. So we're really kind of in an early, early stage um, uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma situation. Um, and then the other question is how many nodal groups are involved? And we have the supraclavicular region and we have the right cervical region. So we have two nodal groups. So we don't have an excessive nodal group number. We don't have anything like, you know, greater than four nodal groups. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other salient feature is the ESR is 20. And there are different cutoffs that people have used um, for the distinction between early favorable and early unfavorable, but by any of the cutoffs anyone has used, 20 would be considered um, not an adverse prognostic feature, and it it wouldn't bump you out of the favorable camp. Uh, The last thing you have is a patient's age. It's not over the age of 50. Um, And then the other thing you have is the fact that none of this disease is bulky, uh, which, again, there are different cutoffs used, but over the over the size of 10 centimeter cutoff is one that's typically used, and people have different sort of centimeter cutoffs that they prefer. Um, But it's not in bulky. It's early stage. It's favorable Hodgkin's lymphoma. The patient got two cycles of ABVD, and they've had a pretty good response on interval PET-CT with a doval of two. So that's below the level of the mediastinum and below the level of the liver. And so this patient, they're just teeing it up because this patient is really the ideal patient um, who could be treated according to a particular clinical trial, Mm -hmm. um, which is a New England Journal study, which is a randomized clinical trial, two-by-two factorial study. So they're forms of this trial. Um, and it looked at ABVD2 cycles or ABVD4 cycles with 20 grave involved field radiation or 30 grave involved field radiation. And I believe it showed that for patients with early favorable disease, that 2 and 20 um, had comparable failure-free survival uh, to 4 and 30 uh, with less toxicity and less treatment, and thus 2 and 20 is the recommended treatment for this patient. So I would say involved field radiotherapy to 20 gray. Correct. All right, let's move on to the next one. No, come on. There's more to <laughs> no, talk about. Pre- yeah, so the, the trial you're referencing is the HD10 trial. Um, this is a German study. German study? Mm-hmm. I believe they're mostly a German yeah. study. German HD10, yeah. And it's exactly as you said. It was um, people with favorable risk. And this favorable risk has different definitions, but I think the ones most, there's two of them that are defined, but the ones that are, the, the factors that are in all definitions are the ESR, and yes. it's usually under 50 is favorable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other things are the uh, the number of nodal areas is mm-hmm. included, and that's either greater than three or greater than four, depending on the one you look at. 
whether you have a large mediastinal mass and your age being 50. So 50 is a good number to remember for both the age and the ESR. So he fits into favorable risk, early stage. And you're right, the outcomes in this HD10 trial were freedom from treatment failure, mm-hmm. FFTF. FFTF. Which I have not seen, actually, since. Freedom from is that, treatment That's failure. not a very frequent uh, yeah, a, uh, definition. I think, I think yeah. it's just a unique way that these that, that, that it's worded in these Hodgkin studies, yeah. Okay. And then OS was as well. And, and uh, everyone had very, very similar in all four treatment arms, similar uh, FFTF, OF. Or OS, but the toxicity was substantially higher in higher chemo cycles and higher radiation doses. Mm-hmm. So for that reason, we give two and twenty, which is kind of how they refer to it a lot. Two and twenty, and so that would make option B, which is inc- is incorrect because that was to provide thirty gray of radiation, correct? And that was also subtotal nodal irradiation rather than involved field radiation. That's another important distinction here mm-hmm. in Hodgkin's. I think the answer choice D was incorrect. Four additional cycles of ABVD. So six cycles of ABVD is a common treatment for advanced Hodgkin's lymphoma, but not early Hodgkin's mm-hmm. lymphoma. Um, option E is an interesting option. Four additional cycles of AVD chemotherapy omitting bleomycin. So here, I believe the authors were evoking the clinical trial RATHL. Right. It's a randomized control non-inferiority study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine for patients with advanced Hodgkin's lymphoma, although I believe there might have been a couple people with stage 2 disease who slipped in there, but mostly advanced Hodgkin's lymphoma. Patients received two cycles of ABVD and had an interim PET-CT, and if the PET-CT showed Doval 1 or 2, they were randomized to ABVD for four additional cycles or AVD for four additional cycles, the omission of bleomycin, which we know is a particularly toxic agent in this space. And the trial actually failed to meet its non-inferiority margin, though it had a lower-than-expected event rate. And I think this is quite reasonable, that the reasonable way in which people have interpreted this study is that it is generally reassuring that says you can you can safely omit bleomycin in these people, um, that the reason it didn't meet the margin was probably because outcomes were better than anticipated, and so the study lost a little power for non-inferiority. Um, I think what has to be yeah. remembered about that, too, is that people sometimes cite that study to justify escalating therapy if the pet is not... Yes. Uh, interim pit is not, you know, a low enough doble score, but that's sort of making a little assumption. I think it's it concludes that you can omit the bleo if the pet is negative, but the other way around, you can't really conclude, but people say that. I think that's a great point, which is that Although we often, in advanced-age Hodgkin's, if we get a Doval 4 or 5 on interim PET, a lot of people will escalate to Biacob. Mm-hmm. But to my knowledge, that is still something that it doesn't have a randomized data showing that that escalation is superior to not escalating. We just know that if you don't escalate, you don't have great outcomes. And so people are naturally a little cautious, and they want it. You know, they often want to escalate, mm-hmm. but it, the great study would be, of course, to randomize those patients to escalate and be a cop or be a cop or whatever you'd like or versus perhaps staying on ABVD, knowing that they unfortunately do have a high rate of, of failure. The other study in this space that's always worth talking about is Echelon. Echelon 1, the randomized trial of ABVD versus Abrintuximab VD, which appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine and use the primary endpoint of modified PFS, a different primary endpoint, where you were scored as positive if you had PET-AVID disease, Doval 3, 4, or 5 at end of treatment, and the doctor decided to act upon that. So this is another pearl with Hodgkin's disease, which is that if you get to end of treatment, let's just say this 25-year-old patient you talked about, you, you radiate 20 gray, and then let's say, say you get an end of treatment PET-CT, and that PET-CT shows Doval 3 or something like that. It shows um, some residual avidity. I think the wrong answer would be to take the person straight to transplant. The right answer would be to biopsy the patient mm-hmm. or give them a tincture of time 
repeat that PET CT in a few months, see what's going on, confirm with a biopsy before you escalate further therapy because that might be sort of um, anything from thymic rebound in the mediastinum or it could be uh, anything from inflammation or scarring or it could be something non uh, progressive disease. And did they, I think in that trial, they imaged fairly soon after the end of treatment, right? I believe Sooner they than you would otherwise normally do it. So, yeah. And, and then they radiated some of those people to get their modified PFS event. And the other thing about that trial is the control arm, of course, did not use a risk-adapted strategy, which is the Rathal strategy. And that trial had a lot of toxicity. And the cost of ABVD is, <laughs> Brentoximab <else>? is terrible. <laughs> and that trial is just just plain awful and the worst of it and swag knows they got on my bad side for this but the worst of it is that the ongoing swag study is a nivolumab vd versus a brintuximab vd and that doesn't make me happy because the control there's no <laughs> there's no arm of that trial that is actually what people should actually be doing with this good old-fashioned abvd yeah well dr olson it's a pleasure to have you here and you picked a topic that I actually care a lot about. I can tell you got really excited about that one. Just wait till we get to the next ones. Is it a classical hematology one? We'll have to wait till next week. We'll wait till next week. (laughs) All right, I'll see you next week, Dr. Elson. Bye-bye. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Ian Straley for Question of the Week, inspired by USMLE Step 2 CK. Ian, it's great to have you back. Good to be back for another question. Another question. You know, I'm still thinking about the last one you gave me. Sensitivity, specificity is a tough one. It was tricky, yeah. But I think it's a key concept, you know, clinically for, uh, you know, in practice also. I think I can see how it still is going to apply many years from now for me and for all of your listeners, really. So I think it was a good concept to review. I'm glad we did it. So what do we have this week? This week we have one that's sort of in the primary care territory, so... I'll just go ahead and start reading. We have a 30-year-old woman who comes to the physician because she had a positive pregnancy test at home. She reports feeling like a little bit of morning sickness uh, during the past week, and during this period, she's also had increased urinary frequency. She is sexually active with her boyfriend, and they use condoms inconsistently. Her last menstrual period was five weeks ago, and physical exam shows no abnormalities. A urine pregnancy test in the clinic is positive. A pap smear is positive for high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesion. Colposcopy shows cervical intraepithelial neoplasia, grade 2 and 3. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in the management of this patient? So option A, colposcopy and cytology at 6-month intervals for 12 months. Option B, reevaluation with cytology and colposcopy six weeks after the birth of the baby. Option C, endocervical curette. Option D, perform a leap, loop electrosurgical excision procedure. Or option E, diagnostic excisional procedure, which is slightly different from the leap. Okay, so what do we have here? Hmm. Outside my expertise, Ian. Uh, 28-year-old... I I have faith. I think you can get it. 28-year-old woman uh, has a positive pregnancy test at home. Uh, Her urine pregnancy test is positive in the office, so I guess the fact is that she's pregnant. Yes. I'm no expert, but that's one thing I do know. Yep. Um, But what's going on... Two positives is a positive. Two positives is a positive. Okay, but what's going on as well 
is that a pap smear was performed and had high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesion yep. on pap. Mm-hmm. That's a cytological assessment. And then on colposcopy, presumably with a punch biopsy, there was a CIN 2 and 3 lesion that was found, which is considered a high-risk CIN condition, kind of a precancerous lesion. Correct. So the question is what to do. I guess yeah. the first question is, and the prompt is not giving us, which is what is this young woman's preferences regarding the child? Is she going to carry this child to term? She want to have this baby or not? Or is she going to? Mm, that's a good thing. I yeah. Didn't, I didn't think about. Yeah. I think the question assumes that, or at least the answer choices assume that she has decided she wants has this decided baby. she wants to continue. Yeah. Good. Let's let's go forward with that with that. But let's not assume anything in the real world. Let's let's go. But let's go forward with that for the question. Okay. So she's carrying. She wants to carry this baby to term. So I think that the point is the question is how do you manage these high risk precancerous lesions in the setting of pregnancy. And I think what it's trying to teach you are two things. One, are these procedures safe in pregnancy? Um, can they be, or they do they have can entail some risk? And what is the natural history of this condition in pregnancy? Mm-hmm. And I guess what I would say is that there is some evidence that the natural history of these conditions is to have some element of improvement um, upon the delivery of the child. There is some improvement, uh, even regression of the of the precancerous lesion to perhaps a earlier grade lesion, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Um, even maybe some more resolution. So that's one thing to know. Um, and the next thing to know is that some of these procedures, like loop electrocautery, um, may actually remove a piece of the cervix, and that has a theoretical and perhaps even a, a real risk of. Um, bleeding and and perhaps even the worst case scenario pregnancy loss or something like that. Yeah, and I think um, part of that is the like premature dilation of the cervix can happen if you I have see. Mm-hmm. Uh, a procedure done prior to birth. And I guess the other thing I want to say about this question is this is not the kind of board's question that one can hang their hat on well done randomized control trials because I'm pretty confident that they don't exist for this question. Yes, I remember hearing about that in the OB-GYN world in general on my rotations that that is one challenge they run up against because of the the ethics of putting pregnant women and babies through research studies. I see. That's how they justify it, huh? <laughs> it's interesting to me because I think it, it is a fact of the world that that field uh, often lacks randomized controlled trials, and they may rationalize that however they wish. But mm-hmm. one of the implications of that is is that when you don't have a lot of studies, you ironically deprive people with that uh, in that situation from information that may be necessary to help them in their care. Yeah, it's or really help, helpful. Yeah, or helpful. Yeah. So you might be doing it because you feel like you're protecting someone, but you may actually be doing them a disservice by by not being willing to study um, basic things. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's a little bit like the if you you're helping, you're you might not help the patient in the study. But by gaining the information from the study, you might help the greater good or the, yeah. the public. Um, People like so that yeah, person in the future. Kind of putting those two um, ethical principles at odds. Do mm-hmm. you help the patient or do you help the greater good? Mm. But and but I think that, uh, interestingly, that tension exists for like every group of people, whether it be like adult men over the age of 60 or pregnant women. But the thing is that we've had this like extreme reluctance to do randomized studies of, you know, different ways of doing childbirth or different things in yeah. pregnancy and these kinds of things. Um, but we probably should be a little bit more open to that. 
Uh, okay, but anyway, this is the biggest side. And then the other side is, of course, that seminal parachute article in the British Medical Journal was written by two OBGYN doctors. So mm. no wonder they think everything's a parachute and you can't randomize. <laughs> um, okay, but back to your question. So I think the principles they're trying to get at are, one, this might get better with time. Two, some of these procedures are invasive, um, such as curatage, such as uh, cautery loop, um, such as a diagnostic excision. And so I think what they're going to say is um, let's have the baby and then let's reassess uh, with, uh, with a colposcopy and cytology afterwards. Yep, that's correct. Six weeks after birth is what they're recommending hmm. for a repeat cytology and colposcopy. Now, the one thing I don't know is why they don't recommend your other answer choice was you could do this at six months intervals for 12 months and not do anything more aggressive. So what was the rationale about that one? That I guess yeah. I guess because uh, if she has just gotten pregnant, then six months from now she'll still be pregnant. That's fair enough. And they wouldn't want to do colposcopy and cytology at that time. Although they've done it already once. Right. Yeah. But I think... An additional colposcopy yeah. cytology is not the right timing. Wait till the end. Yeah. That'd be my guess. Yeah. And I guess maybe the other thing is, is that um, if this grade of lesion persists uh, after pregnancy it might require something more than colposcopy being done. Mm, true. But it is an interesting field because, yeah, there there are many places, there are many junctures in here where one might want to see randomization uh, because all of these guidelines on, you know, what to do in the workup of an abnormal pap smear, um, you know, they've changed over the years. It used to be, I think we used to be far more aggressive, both in terms of the frequency with which we deployed pap smears, mm-hmm. you know, they were mm-hmm. recommended uh, annually, and uh, now that we've spaced that out, just in my time, to the way in which we would work up abnormalities on pap smears has gotten a lot more um, permissive. And um, and again, in these cases, I think I think a couple of good studies would be would go a long way. But it's an important question. Yeah, it'd be a, an interesting conversation to have with someone in the OB/GYN research world and hear hear their thoughts on like what. What is the conversation on this, like, looking yeah, forward? What why, are people pushing for? Yeah, or what not? are they pushing for? Where's the future headed, and, and how are they going to get there? As long yeah. as they don't cite that parachute paper, I'll be happy. <laughs> Fair well, enough. Well, Ian, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ with Audrey Tran for Questions from a Medical Student. Audrey, it's great to have you here. Thanks for having me back. It's been ages since we've seen so each other. Long. So long. <laughs> so, what's on the docket this week? All right, so this week, I think I would, this is kind of in response to the the episode you dropped about the the subacute facilities um, and kind of how perhaps, you know, as a larger group, medicine has kind of delayed or pushed and shirked a little bit from these, like, difficult conversations. Mm. Um, Because I I found that to be very sobering about how, and I I have seen this personally kind of in when I was in the hospitalist rotation Mm -hmm. about how perhaps we'd send some people or the plan was to maybe send a person to a subacute facility. To get stronger. To get stronger and then potentially do some immunotherapy. But I think realistically we knew that wasn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was really agonizing. Um, And I think the team knew that as well as that that was his wish and that's what he wanted in, but he was also kind of in a delirious state, this Mm. patient. And so it was really hard to have that conversation about end of life care or uh, transitioning to comfort and, and, um, you know, managing pain. Um, and this was like drew out for like weeks, um, just because it was hard to have that conversation. And it was also in this case, I think it was also 
complicated by the fact that he was perhaps not in the, mm-hmm. he did not have decision-making a, capacity. Right. Um, but I think just on a larger scale, I think for other cases too, you know, I'm finding that what people have been saying is that perhaps one of the hardest parts of this job is to learn how to have a difficult conversation, um, especially when it matters and especially when you can feel the gravity um, of ha- what you say in these minutes can affect and kind of almost shape the trajectory or the perspective or the perception, I think, of our patients, uh, families and the patients themselves. Mm-hmm. And so my question this week is just as someone who's dealt you know, in oncology and dealt with like difficult, difficult situations, how how have you managed to have these conversations knowing that everyone is different and they can take these the same facts very differently? Um, I know it's hard to say like that these are skills, you know, like these are just like concrete formulas that you, you know, carry out and it's more of a this art, right? But what are some ways that students can think about, you know, engaging in these conversations in a way that feels that we've done our patients justice? Well, that's a great question. I guess I'd say the first thing is, which is I never, I think that you're never good at it and you're always just getting better and you should keep okay. that philosophy in mind because in the long run, it'll probably serve you well to realize that you probably could be doing a better job. Sure. Um, and I guess I want to draw a distinction between, I think that it's important to have difficult conversations, um, but not to make conversations more difficult than they need to be. And by that mm, I mean, um, every so often in my clinic, I get a patient who may have been seen by another physician and, and people tell me things like what the other doctor may have said. And uh, and sometimes what sticks with people is people say, oh, the doctor said you had three months to live and here mm-hmm. I am at month four. So, um, oh, you wow. know, yeah. that doctor was wrong. And then I say, of course, um, you know, I would never advise a doctor to give somebody a specific date by which, um, you know, their life will be over because that doctor very likely would be wrong Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, even if you're using the median, it will not capture the experience of the majority of people, both those prior to the median, those after the median. Um, and, and, and it doesn't convey the sense of uncertainty that really goes in hand with saying such a thing. And I think it does come across to many people as flippant and people, um, get anchored to that number, and if things aren't exactly on that number, then they feel like that doctor was deficient in a way. So I uh, really strongly urge against that. But I guess I would say, to answer your question, um, I don't know if there's a right way to do it, and I guess I don't know um, uh, the perfect way, but I think there's some things that may be helpful. Um, one is the setting you're in. So I guess in my line of work, I more often do this in the outpatient setting than the inpatient setting. And I find there are a few things that are more helpful in the outpatient setting. One, in the first visit, I think when you meet somebody, I think it's important to make clear the expectations of treatment, which is, is the treatment pursued with a curative intent, i.e. there's a group of people in whom, upon cessation of therapy, will enjoy life expectancy comparable to age sex match controls, i.e. the Eastern Russell definition of cure uh, from the 1960s, which people have forgotten, but it's a very good definition <laughs> of cure. But like cure by what people mean by cure, right. which is I finish the treatment and then my odds of living a good life are just as good as if I didn't have the disease. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So is that the pursuit of therapy? or? is the pursuit of therapy merely to improve survival, um, knowing that there's nothing we can do to eradicate the disease and the disease will eventually um, claim the person's life, but the goal is to lengthen life. Um, Mm -hmm. Or is the goal merely to alleviate symptoms, make someone feel better, improve quality of life? Um, 
or is the goal merely to improve a surrogate endpoint with the hope that you're improving quality of life or longevity, but you don't really know? And unfortunately, all too often in oncology, we find ourselves in that mm -hmm. bucket. But I think it's important to kind of make clear like what the goal of treatment is at the at the very outset with somebody, so that people know you know what it is they're getting into and what it is to expect. Um, I think I said this on a podcast that's going to be coming out, but you haven't listened to with Mark Lewis, which is that I always. Um, I don't think the first visit is the best visit to discuss prognosis mm -hmm. um, because I think it's important to have a little bit of rapport and even sometimes seeing somebody a second time, even if it's just a week later or two days later or some you know brief period right. of time later, builds a lot of rapport. Um, and I think it's also important to ask first if somebody wants that information because I think people have the right to not want information. Um, but if people do want that information, I always favor an approach. I don't know if this is right, but giving somebody like the the 20th and the 80th percentile of outcomes. So like on the mm -hmm. short end, it could be two to three months. On the long end, it could be eight to mm -hmm. nine months. That's where most people fall. They're outliers on both ends. They're, you know, um, you know, like all, like, like the truth about life is, you know, even I could get hit by a bus when I walk out of here. So like on the short end, we don't know what we're guaranteed. On the long end, there are people with this condition who live a little bit further, but to kind of frame it with an 80th and 20th percentiles, because I think that's helpful to give somebody a realistic range um, if you give a very long range, people often focus on the outliers. Um, and then to tell people that, you know, we can hope for the best, but we should also give you the opportunity, you have the right, um, to prepare for the worst, be that sort of getting your finances in order, um, reaching out to a loved one with whom you may be estranged, um, those kinds of things in life that just mean a lot to somebody. So I do think that when I talk about prognosis with people after getting their agreement to talk about prognosis, that's the way I frame it. Um, and then I think it's important to kind of at the outset kind of lay out the groundwork for you know what's the approach to this treatment how often do we do the treatment and then do we have a holiday from treatment if the cancer ever came back what would we do again and if it came back multiple times you know are there any options in that setting or or not um, and the reason I say that all of this is important is that all of this so like preparation up front helping somebody understand what they're dealing with and what the future may look like that is the best thing you can do mm -hmm. for the difficult conversation down the road, which is you may have even averted a difficult conversation because you've prepared someone so well. They have a, such a, their, their understanding of their disease is very similar to your understanding of their disease. And so when the time comes that, you know, it might be the time to move from cytotoxic chemotherapy to palliative care, they may be ready for it, you know, maybe even sooner than you are ready for it. So that's one thing that I think helps difficult conversations. The second thing about difficult conversations is I think so often they seem so difficult when you're sitting out there in the doctor's room looking at the chart, thinking you're going to go in and have a conversation. But when you go in and talk to somebody for a few minutes, you so often get the sense that this person feels this internally and that you're just articulating something that they know from deep within. Mm. And so I often find that you're just giving words to what they have felt, like this cancer is getting worse, you know, yeah. so that it's not as much as a surprise. I think those situations that, that plague us as doctors that are the most difficult is when you're covering sort of like this inpatient service kind of situation where you meet somebody with a new diagnosis of a cancer, you're hopeful you can get them to treatment, but you know they're presenting in a very advanced stage or have a lot of comorbidities and you're not sure. And so you're, you really do wonder about is rehab going to be the place where they get better or not. The other situation I think is very difficult is when you get a patient who may have had a different doctor who didn't do all this work up front, who may have been in haste or hurried, and you hear people tell you things like, oh, well, the doctor never told me this was not a curative cancer. 
even though mm-hmm. it's not a curative cancer. And and you're you find yourself in this situation of you know, you're you're new to someone and you have to sit and you have to do right, all, and this do all this work, work that has not been done of like, and contradict somebody mm-hmm. who may have been their right. doctor. Mm-hmm. And I it's think tricky. it's tricky. And in the heart of doctors, if we're perfectly honest, I think some of us, we become a little bit resentful if we see that behavior from the same people over and over. In our minds, we see that doctor as a doctor who's not doing this emotional work um, that needs to be done as part of being a doctor. And you become a little bit, I think, critical of such a doctor. Sure. And unfortunately, when such a doctor has a reputation for such a practice, you become a little bit more annoyed about it. So I think that that's like part of the challenge. I think one of the biggest challenges that you face on like an internal medicine service is that there may not be anybody on the team who has the sort of technical knowledge of what are the treatments and what is the prognosis and, and that sort of thing. And so that's why it might be a little bit easier for an oncologist. But then in terms of the specific encounters, like when you do actually have to go and tell somebody some news that you don't want to say and, and they don't want to, to, to have happen, like nobody wants this, I think there's some things that I find helpful to say. One is um, just to acknowledge that I'm sorry and like this is not what I want. I don't want this to happen and you know, I, I, wish this, I just wish, wish this didn't happen to you. The other thing I find sometimes helpful to say is just to make it clear to somebody that I, I, I hope you know that if there were any other therapy we could give you that would fix this problem, you know, I would do anything to get you that therapy. I want you to know that. Like, and with all sincerity, because that's true when you're somebody's doctor, you you would do anything. And in fact, we do do anything. Because when sometimes, you know, um, <laughs> when you're somebody's doctor and there's a barrier to getting what you want, I think all of us who are physicians, we smash those barriers right. all the time and we become good at smashing the barrier. And if the barrier will not be smashed, people do not understand what I will do to smash this barrier. <laughs> I will do anything and I will take all my resources and all my energy, which is, when, when it comes to smashing yeah. barriers that get in the way of what I want to do to, in, in the yeah. best interest of somebody, you, the amount of energy you can imagine right. that I'm going to bring to this project is going to be yeah. all of my energy right. into smashing this barrier. So I just want to like make that clear to people that I will smash these barriers. Um, be that financial or logistic or whatever, or getting this to happen. Um, but in these moments, often it, those barriers are not the barrier. The barrier is the, the nature of the illness itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing I find is you have to just matter-of-factly get across the point you want to make, which may be that there is no next therapy that is going to afford you any benefit, that the treatment has stopped working, that this pain might require some palliative radiation, but I'm not sure what else we can do. I think you need, need to be honest about when you don't know what you can do additionally, um, um, just to, you know, to keep that open. Um, but I think the most important thing you need to do in these moments is then you need to shut up and sit there and listen. And I think a lot of us are uncomfortable with silence, um, but after you deliver news like this, I think you just have to sit there for just a whole lot longer than you think you need to sit there. Mm-hmm. You have to sit there long enough for somebody to process it in their mind to kind of go through the different stages of having heard the news and then having done all that to come back to it and then think like what are the practical questions that they may have and you need to give enough time that you're sitting there waiting for them to ask you what they want to ask you which they don't even know what they want to ask you in that moment it's going to take them minutes mm-hmm. to know and so that's why I think that if you are running these like overbook clinics and you're busy all the time and you have something coming up later you just can't do this the way you ought to do this. You need to be able to just sit there. And um, the other things that are helpful, of course, that I should have mentioned at the outset is like before you go into this, 
you should ask somebody who is important to them in their life that they would want to be a part of this discussion because sometimes it's so difficult to remember when it's happening to us but right. there but our, all of our friends serve as like extended memory banks you know for everything in life <laughs> mm-hmm. so i think that's important too um and then to put it as i think carefully as possible as factually as possible and then to allow a lot of space on the back end and know it's going to take some space um, I think that's that's what you can hope to do well. Um, but it isn't, uh, you know, you'll listen to this Mark Lewis episode, and I think he puts it so well, which is, you know, as an oncologist or any doctor, on the one hand, you can't be so um, distant from the person that these bad things don't hurt you too. They will hurt you. They should hurt you. I mean, when you get bad news, it hurts. It should pain. I mean, it pains you as a doctor. But it can't pain you so much that you become ineffective or you're unable to go on with the day. Like the paralysis. Paralysis, yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's some line that we walk, which is being compassionate and empathetic, but being objective enough to guide somebody. And then to be able to walk out of that room, Mark puts it better than I do, and then walk into the next room and perhaps deliver somebody the best news of their day. Right. Right. Or, or, you know, to put on another face and go in there and do it again uh, in a different direction or or have a similar tough conversation. That emotional range is just so so vast i think or that to be prepared for to that. be prepared for that mm-hmm. but then i think um i don't know i mean like i so often hear from people they say they, they don't want to go into a career where you have to do this kind of stuff right yeah i get i get that all the time um they're like i just you know it's just it's too that, that'd be too hard for me to say to do all these sorts of things and i it's funny because um i think they love being people who bear good news you know and like they get to Partaken, of course, that's super rewarding, and I'm sure that's very attractive. But I think so, there's something to me that's very drawn about this idea where, you know, um, like I said, your perception of the medical system, all of, if you're a patient, all of it can be hinged upon this one experience. You know, it only takes one bad taste in your mouth to, like, I don't know, cre- create these, like, seeds of doubt and the planting these sorts of things. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's not that everybody's like that. It's not these, but it i don't know it feels really important that we we know how to address that because i think that's it is tricky you know to do this emotional labor and to to feel someone's pain in a way that's authentic and 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 to be like you know this this affects us too you know what i mean that we that we do care about the outcome of our patients in front of us um yeah i mean it's it's difficult but i feel like it's just so important that it's like we can't shy away from it like, yeah I, I think it's know. important and I mean part of what I want to say to such people like they like only want to be in the good news business like only want to go into rooms and say you're cured you're <laughs> cured you're cured uh, one thing I want to say to such people is um, it is very likely you have chosen a specialty with rampant overdiagnosis <laughs> so you want to be in the business of like removing thyroid nodules and you can tell people all day they're cured great well you know there's a thyroid cancer epidemic that has not been met with a commensurate reduction in mortality so you can feel good about yourself but you're very likely contributing to an unnecessary medical illness you're medicalizing the well and so I mean I want to say that like so much of people who are in the business of just just good news is is that that's not to say there aren't people who do good news things that are transformative like stenting open STEMI I mean that's something that's transformative but they they run the risk of not having great outcomes too and they have to go and give some very tough news um you know uh, or, or that they underwent some cath for uh, for some uh, lesser event uh and and that the patient died on the table or something like that mm-hmm. you know like they, right. that's a i mean that's yeah. not easy news Gosh. to give um and i don't want to get in too much of a side note of things that have happened in that space but i mean i guess i want to say that 
I mean, the other thing I want to say to such people is that, like, um, you know, have you ever loved someone more than you love yourself? Like, part of what mm-hmm. that means to, like, live as a human being is that um, you're not guaranteed all positive experiences in your life. There's some negative experiences in our lives, too, and we have to bear that. Uh, because that's part of what gives the positive experiences so much meaning. And the easiest way to insulate yourself from anything discomforting in the negative way is not to feel anything at all and to walk around with no attachments, no friends, no family, no loved ones. Um, But we can't do that. And being a doctor is just kind of an extension of that. You, You take that burden on for your grandparents, for your parents, for people in your life who you care about. I mean, you already am taking that burden for some people. And as a doctor, you're just taking it for a few more people. But hopefully you're able to do it in a way that the people are better off that they've worked with you. And mm-hmm. I think that maybe, you know, as a doctors, we always pride ourselves on like the decisions we make, the technical decisions. And um, I think we hope and we strive that we're making the best decisions. And we go to tumor boards and we go to department meetings and we go to conferences. And they're a lot, I mean, they're, they're, they're interesting because we can argue about the decision. And, and there's nothing more satisfying than when you know you have that winning argument, you right, know? Right, that, right. that I have the data, I have the yes. way of looking at it. I, this is my approach. Mm-hmm. And then after you tell people, when people immediately like, say, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to approach, you know, that's, I mean, that, that gives a lot of satisfaction. Um, uh, but that's, the medical decisions is just like, 20% of the thing, This mm-hmm. 80% of it is this emotional labor of being a physician. And if it weren't for that, then, you know, these decisions could be made in a back room right. and, and somebody could just go out and deliver the news in like an envelope, you know, be very impersonal. <laughs> right. um, so, but, but so I do think it's important and um, it's, it's something to work on and work at and try to be better at. And, you know, don't you want to have some things you want to be better at in your life that aren't easy, you know, that's difficult? Exactly. Yeah, I heard somebody say something about like this person with like a lot of different pursuits, and somebody said like, "What is the unifying theme in all these like things you do?" And this person said like, "They're difficult. Everything I'm doing is trying to do something mm-hmm. difficult." Um, and this is something difficult, and you know that like you have to work at, and you have to try to do better, um, and it's important. And so that's why I think it's much more satisfying than, and maybe this is my bias showing, but a career where you just go tell people good news. Um, I would highly doubt that the evidence base is robust. I mean, I guess it's my mm-hmm. gut feeling. That the evidence has <laughs> got to be poor. If, it, if the outcomes can be so good all the time, there's very few medical interventions that actually accomplish that degree of good. It has to be that the substrate is good, destined to do well. It has to be a lot of overdiagnosis. I think that's a lot of the fields. Mm-hmm. And then the fields in which that the outcome is really transformed by the provider, um, there is no guarantee of outcomes, and there are bad outcomes too. Um, there's nothing I know that's the, the quote-unquote parachute. There's nobody in that parachute business. Um, so I guess those are my thoughts on this. I think it's like a, it's a very interesting issue um, that it's probably more than one one episode. Yeah. But someday we'll get the full answer. Yeah. Well, thank you, Audrey, for coming on this week's Question from a Medical Student. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening. <laughs>